Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and today we'll be speaking with Clayton Aldern, a data reporter at Grist, which is a nonprofit independent media organization dedicated to telling stories of climate solutions and a just future. A Reynolds Journalism Institute fellow, Clayton's writing and data visualization have appeared in The Atlantic, The Economist, The Guardian, Vox, and many other publications. He holds a master's in neuroscience and a master's in public policy from the University of Oxford, where he studied as a Rhodes Scholar. Previously, he led the data analysis and program evaluation team for homelessness programs at Pierce County, Washington in the United States. He is also a research affiliate of the University of Washington Center for Studies in Demography and Ecology. And with the housing scholar, Greg Colburn, he is the author of the forthcoming book, Homelessness is a Housing Problem. His current research interests concern the neurological impacts of rapid environmental change. He speaks to us about a data investigation he worked on with his colleagues at Grist and the Texas Observer, examining the abandonment of oil wells in the Permian Basin region in Texas and New Mexico. The investigation found that the governments in both states have gravely underestimated the number of oil and gas wells that need to be cleaned up, along with the costing models associated with this, a bill which is often footed with the taxpayer. We hear how Clayton used machine learning to create a data model of oil wells that are on the verge of shutting down. This article is a finalist for the University of Florida Award for Investigative Data Journalism, Small and Medium Newsrooms, via Online News Association's awards. Before we jump in with today's episode, remember that you can get the Conversations with Data podcast straight to your inbox by subscribing to our newsletter at datajournalism.com slash subscribe. Now let's take a listen to our conversation with Clayton Aldern. Clayton Aldern, welcome to Conversations with Data. Hello. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I have to admit that I am a fan and a subscriber, so I'm truly delighted. Woohoo! <laughs> Brilliant. So let's start out by talking about your path into data and journalism. It seems like you've got quite an interesting background in data science and neuroscience, and you're also a journalist and writing. So just tell us about that and how you got into it. Yeah, I, it's a little bit circuitous. Um, I thought I was going to be a scientist and went to grad school to do that. Um, I was a neuroscientist by training in, in grad school and, and halfway through uh, what I thought was going to be the route to a PhD, I decided I didn't want to uh, sit in, in front of a screen. I was a computational neuroscientist, so there was a lot of brain modeling and looking at digital signals. And uh, I mostly spent my hours in a basement lab and didn't want to do that forever, so uh, decided to basically take the master's degree and run. And I was on a scholarship and basically applied the rest of my scholarship money to study public policy, which was the thing that I felt I knew the least about, but probably if I knew a little bit more about it, I'd be slightly more useful in the world. So I did a, I did a master's in public policy. And at the end of this program, uh, I had to do some kind of practicum, right? Some kind of uh, work placement effectively 
wherein I would use my newly minted public policy analysis skills uh, as, as some kind of capstone project for the degree. And didn't really feel like it was time to work in government per se. Um, so I, I thought about my science background and said, maybe there's some kind of science policy gig I can get. And I was interested in writing. I'd been freelancing a little bit. Uh, so I started for climate policy writing jobs because that seemed like a science policy thing that maybe someone might be able to do somewhere in the world. Uh, this was in 2015 or so around COP21. So there was a you know, what was science policy then? It was it was climate policy as it as it is now, maybe antibiotic resistance, right? That was around the Ebola epidemic. So so I took a plunge into climate policy writing, which effectively meant uh, getting a job at Grist, uh, which to to make a long story very short is where I work now. Um, Grist is a nonprofit environmental magazine headquartered in Seattle. Uh, I moved from the UK to Seattle to uh, work in journalism for the first time full time. Um, but it was a little bit of a marriage between the science background and policy analysis and and writing. And, and that was kind of my first taste of what data journalism could be. I wasn't actually doing a whole lot of data journalism then at the time. And this was a fellowship at the magazine. So I was just kind of learning, learning the tools of the trade of, of journalism. And it was great. Um, and it was a year and then I left. <laughs> and then I was and I was in the public sector for a couple of years in housing and homelessness policy and, and recently came back to Grist um, to, to build out a proper data journalism unit um, at the magazine. So, so that's, that's the circuitous path, um, computational neuroscience to public policy analysis, to journalism and, and out and back again. Marvelous. Now the mission of Grist is really an interesting one. It's almost as if the organizations like try to give hope to people by showing like a solutions oriented approach to the climate and environment. And it just feels like, I mean, for as someone who wrote a little bit about environmental issues when I was at the Huffington Post at the time, it did feel very soul destroying because you just felt like you were writing another about another study of how we're all going to just ruin ourselves because, you know, we're flying too much, we're eating all the wrong things, we're doing all mm -hmm. these wrong things. So it's really quite an interesting approach. And I'm, I'm just curious, what is it like day to day to be working in that kind of news environment where you're trying to sort of find that positive angle or explain the complicated narrative that's around this? Yeah, it's it's a great question. I, I think often there's this tension uh, in, in media between let's call it solutions journalism and perhaps the more traditional vein uh, of, of journalism that we might call, I don't know, accountability reporting. And I don't think there needs to be a tension there. And, and, and in fact, I suspect it depends on who you ask, but I, I'm not sure I'd go so far as to say we seek to give people hope. I think it has more to do with, with something like desire. We're interested in illustrating what a better future looks like. And by extension, uh, we're interested in people reaching out toward that future, realizing that it's possibly within grasp uh, if if one indeed puts in a little effort. <laughs> so I, I, I mean, I mean, I think like where accountability reporting or investigative journalism and and solutions journalism meet is is in indeed at that point of desire, right? I think hope it can be a little bit of a dangerous thing, actually, in, in, in climate journalism, 
um, insofar as I think it can it can breed a little bit of um, self-satisfaction or complacency almost. Mm. If, 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 you, if you just have this hope, uh, you see people doing great things, you know, sometimes I think there's a tendency to imagine that, well, you don't have to do anything. And I think, you know, in, in part, it's true that individual action per se isn't the, the capital S solution to the climate crisis. You know, people perhaps ought to rely on structural change, <laughs> but, um, but people do have to do something. We can't sit back in our seats. We, we do perhaps need, uh, let's call it community action. And, and, and so by extension, I think it's pretty essential that uh, folks are prodded to act. And, and Grist is interested in action. We, we, we seek to paint pictures of people who are working on the front lines of change and illustrate that that change is very possible and often it's a matter of scale. And if, if we can move in the direction of scaling work similar to that which we cover, um, maybe this, this future that we desire is a little bit closer to us. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you're right. Probably hope isn't the right word, <laughs> um, but it does feel a bit more proactive, I guess, unless suicidal than other journalism <laughs> that you see out there, or uh, even a few years ago, it feels like sure. the tide is turning. Um, now, you worked on a really groundbreaking article with your Grist colleagues looking at the abandonment of the Permian Basin oil wells in Texas and New Mexico. I, I just wonder if you could talk us through that investigation and how data came into it. And um, later, maybe we could talk about the machine learning aspect of that. Gladly. Yeah. So this was a collaboration with the Texas Observer, a reporter there named Christopher Collins and a colleague of mine at Grist, Navina Sadasavam, uh, were really the heavy hitters on this thing. I was pleased to just kind of waltz in in the middle of the investigation and add some data support, uh, which, which became a, a, an excellent, I think, analytical and, and visual aid to the piece. But the two of them were, were really responsible for the, the deep investigative dives here. The fundamental problem is this. Oil and gas wells have a productive life. Right. You, you, you drill a well and you get some oil out of it uh, and that's all well and good. But the, the production curve of this thing falls. It's it's you, you know, you can trace this function. It's well characterized. People have PhDs in this stuff. Um, <clears throat> oil wells have productive lives. And over the course of those productive lives, as as you get uh, marginally less and less oil out of a given well, it becomes less and less profitable for you as an oil company to continue producing from that well. And so if you're a big company, uh, let's say an Exxon, um, at some point you're going to say, you know, we don't really need this thing anymore. Why don't we, why don't we sell this patch of, you know, you're, you're often leasing the land, but you know, we're not going to re-up our lease. We're going to, we're going to sell this thing. Uh, and, and so you pass along uh, a given patch of land um, and, 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 the wells in question to a smaller company, maybe a mid-sized oil company. Uh, and the mid-sized oil company gets a few more years out of the thing. And then the same thing happens to them. They say, it's not worth it anymore. We're, we're not really covering our costs here, but it might be worth it to a little mom and pop oil company. And so the mid-sized oil company uh, <laughs> fails to re-up the lease and a, a little mom and pop shop, you know, little LLCs, for example, 
lease the land and uh, all of a sudden you've, you've got a situation in which an oil well is nearing the end of its productive life and it's not particularly profitable and the owner in question is a single member LLC and maybe they don't even live in the state. So, so this is uh, starting to become a, a, a terrible story insofar as the, the thing that's supposed to happen at the end of an oil well's life is, you know, you basically plug the wells, you cap them. And if, if, if you can't afford to do that, right, because uh, you, you are a mom and pop shop, for example, and you don't have a lot of capital on hand, well, what are you going to do? You might declare bankruptcy, you might just walk away, uh, you might, for example, um, have the state do it for you. How is that possible? Well, at the beginning of a lease, you basically put up some money. You say, if I declare bankruptcy, here's $30,000 or so uh, for you, the state, to plug the well, should I uh, walk away from it in the future. Um, and and the, the problem with the last, the last technique there to uh, oil well plugging is, is that the formulas, the cost formulas that, that priced out how much bonding oil well companies ought to put up, right? How much insurance they ought to put up in terms of covering well plugging costs were they to declare bankruptcy. Those cost formulas were written decades ago. And, and, and since the authoring of those cost formulas, drilling technology has really improved. And, and, and we came across the fracking boom. Basically wells have gotten a lot deeper and deeper wells are harder to plug. And, and so by extension, they're more expensive to plug. And so there's this big question of as these wells reach the end of their lives, and as more and more oil companies, and particularly small, small oil companies, walk away from their wells, whether or not the state has enough cash on hand uh, to plug the wells in question. And, and that's, a, that's an empirical question uh, insofar as you can, you can ask quantitative modeling questions of the state of play in that you can, you can look at the probability with which a given well was abandoned in the past and apply the modeling to the future and uh, seek to project the number of wells that might be abandoned within the next, let's call it decade, and compare the, the <laughs> dollars on book to the cost that, that we imagine it's going to take to plug those wells. So, uh, you know, I don't want to give uh, too much of the story away here, but we don't think that the states are prepared to handle the coming wave. And we, in fact, we think collectively they're undercounting the problem to the tune of about a billion dollars. And, and that's, that's taxpayer money. Right. And I wonder, how did machine learning come into this? Yeah. So it's, it's, I think it's a, a perfect problem for machine learning classification. Insofar as there are, there are basically two classes of orphan wells, or uh, rather of inactive wells. There, there are those wells that are merely not producing oil at any given point in time, but companies are still well aware of their existence and maintaining them. Maybe they're not getting oil out of them because the price of oil has dipped too low for it to be profitable for them to produce. And so they're just saying, hey, you know, we're going to press pause for a moment. And that's fine. Legally, that's enshrined in law. You're, you don't need to be producing oil out of your well every day. And then there are proper orphan wells, those that have been inactive, whether for a number of years uh, or, or in some cases a decade. 
there's, there's maybe, you know, there's, there's an owner on books, but like this, this, this person just like doesn't exist or this, this company is out of state. There's like no track record of, of any compliance with respect to, uh, you know, well monitoring or cleanup or, or anything like that. There's a, there's a clear distinction between inactive wells that are in good standing and inactive wells that aren't, that are, that are true orphans. Uh, as as categorized by the state, um, or the state would have you believe, right? So the state is is the entity that's dropped these labels on top of the classes. They've said there's a population of wells that are inactive, but we think they're fine. There's a population of wells that are orphaned, and we're going to take care of them. Uh, and what what we did is we just said, okay, well, why don't we take a look at the data? and see if we can build a model that distinguishes between your orphan wells and your inactive wells. Um, and, and, and so there are a whole lot of characteristics that describe wells. There's the depth and there's the type and there's the region, right? You, you can imagine building a, 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 you know, effectively a logistic regression model uh, that, that seeks to distinguish between the two classes and then asking, uh, given some back testing, how, how well it does on a chunk of the data set it's never seen before. You know, and that's basically what we did. We, we used this modified form of logistic regression uh, and it's called an elastic net model. And, and we sought to distinguish between inactive wells and orphan wells as categor categorized by the state. And, and, and basically what we found is that there's this subpopulation of inactive wells that are statistically indistinguishable from orphan wells. And with some cross-validation of the model, with some you know, good tried and true statistical testing, we, we, we think we can settle on a pretty comfortable number insofar as within the next four or five years, you know, there are there are a good couple thousand wells that fall into this category and you know, if you sum up the plugging costs, the projected plugging costs, it's on the order of about a billion dollars. Yeah. Right. And what would you say the impact of this investigation has been? Well, it's it's really interesting. So the question of, of well abandonment and, and well plugging is uh, a kind of a hot button issue in the States right now. In, in you know, if you think about the infrastructure negotiations, for example, uh, it's come up again and again and again. Why is that? Well, there are a lot of there are a lot of wells in the country. And there aren't great rules on the books, right? I mentioned that some of these plugging cost formulas were, were, were you know, or the, the bonding formulas were, were written decades ago and, and drilling technology has really improved since then. So, so this isn't just an issue for Texas and New Mexico. It's an issue for California, for Colorado, uh, for the Dakotas, where there's a lot of uh, shale drilling. So, so basically, as soon as we publish this investigation, um, a whole lot of uh, advocates and environmentalists and environmental lawyers and uh, indeed oil and gas industry folks came out of the woodwork and said, hey, we're working on this issue in this other state. Um, can you apply your model to that state? We would like to know what the what the coming wave of abandonment looks like in, in, in our environment. Uh, so one piece of impact was nearly this illustration of the fact that there's a hunger for this type of work. You know, so what do we do with that? Well, we open source the model. Anybody can use it. Uh, it, you know, it takes a little bit of technical know-how and obviously you need a data set. Uh, but the, the, the very first thing we can do is say, hey, look, certainly this analysis is replicable in other contexts. 
here's the model for doing so. Even if we don't have the bandwidth per se, you ought to take this thing and run because it's an important policy question. Um, but but beyond asking these questions, I think the you know the other thing we've seen is even even in for example the Colorado context, you know there there are there are hearings on these questions uh, as we speak, right? They're they're redesigning the bonding requirements or asking themselves whether or not they're going to redesign the bonding requirements, uh, and we've we've seen really nice examples. Uh, of folks offering, you know, official public testimony uh, in which they're citing our model and saying, Here, here's some well-grounded empirical research that suggests there's a big undercounting problem in a context quite similar to ours. And we really ought to take the potential that we're undercounting seriously. Um, so, you know, we're waiting to, to see how some of these proceedings, these policy proceedings play out. Um, but there, you know, there's a nice reason to believe that, uh, at, at, at the very least, the presence of this model, the presence of this investigation out there in the world has opened some folks' eyes to the possibility that undercounting is real and, and the coming waves of abandonment are, uh, <laughs> worthy of, of reckoning. And you also wrote a really interesting piece looking at um, Bitcoin and its impact on the environment. And you explained a rather complicated narrative pretty succinctly. Can you just talk us through that? Yeah, sure, gladly. Yes, this is this is the the beat that, for whatever reason, I've uh, shoehorned myself into all of the all of the dumb stuff happening on the internet. So <laughs> I am the one at Grist who occasionally writes about. NFTs and and GameStop and 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 Bitcoin. So Bitcoin, in in uh, common parlance, would would be an energy suck, right? It it uses a lot of electricity. And why does it use electricity? It's basically the network's security operation. The miners that you've heard of, uh, that would be M I N E R, not O R. The 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 Bitcoin mining operations out there in the world. Um, are, are effectively validating transactions on on this network. You know what is Bitcoin? It's it's a it's a peer to peer decentralized currency. There's no there's no central body that holds a ledger. Rather, that ledger is distributed, and and so you need some some kind of network validation protocol in order to ensure the security of the network. And that's what that's what these mining rigs do. You know, they, they bundle transactions that have come out of these nodes. They bundle these transactions into a block. And then in order to show that block of transactions to the rest of the network, who's going to confirm its validity, they have to solve this big cryptographic puzzle, as it's called. You know, and there, you know, some people refer to it as a random number generator. Some people will say, oh, it's kind of like solving Sudoku. It's kind of none of those things. You're, you're, you're basically conducting a search uh, for what's called a hash, you're you're conducting a search for uh, a number that, when sent through a cryptographic algorithm, produces another, let's call it string, that satisfies a handful of conditions. And upon having done so, and it's really difficult to find that thing, right? That's where the electricity comes in. Uh, upon having done so, you're allowed to show your block of transactions to the rest of the network, and then they say, "Yep, looks good. Let's add this block. These transactions count." So the, the, the problem, if we can call it that, 
and this is, I think, where the piece complicates matters a little bit. The, the problem is that miners compete with one another to propose these blocks to the network for validation. Uh, and so everybody is trying to solve that cryptographic puzzle at once. And for folks who are second and below in the race to solve the problem, all of that electricity uh, was effectively wasted uh, because if you aren't the first to propose your block, uh, you, you throw your transactions away and you start over. So you can imagine that there's a lot of work being done in vain here. And another way of um, proposing these blocks for validation to the network might instead be to just pick one of these one of these mining nodes, let's call it a validation node instead, and say, well, how about this turn? You're the one to propose the block, you know. And then the next, and then the next time around, uh, we'll pick this other validator. And then the next time around, we'll pick this other validator, right? And then in those cases, as opposed to all of the mining operations running constantly at once in order to propose these blocks to the network. Uh, it's just one <laughs> running uh, in 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 sequential order. So, so you know, basically switching from the former protocol to the latter protocol reduces energy use by something on the order of like ninety nine point nine nine percent. So obviously, there's there's an electricity difference between these two protocols. And if you imagine that the electricity is coming from fossil fueled energy, for example. Uh, this is this is a big difference in terms of emissions. <clears throat> now, all that said, and I and I think you know I preluded the fact that there's a complication here. There are some smart folks out there in the world who say, um, you know, one of the one of the problems with renewables, with renewable energy is is the fact that you 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 often have a, a storage and distribution problem. You can have a variable supply problem, but but Bitcoin. Bitcoin mining is basically the perfect interruptible load. You, you can put it anywhere you want in the world. You can turn it on and off anytime you want. And so if you, if you sought to balance that variable supply uh, with some kind of variable demand, Bitcoin could, could be that load. And, and so two things are kind of happening at once. One, the price of renewables is already falling. And, and, and so as miners compete with one another, they're already competing for the cheapest electricity. And that's all well and good. So in, in a lot of regions, that means they're already using renewable energy. What, what this, this second bit of, of math would suggest is that uh, in addition to Bitcoin miners seeking to capture the cheapest form of electricity, they, they might indeed also further pull that cost curve down as they balance that variable supply. So there's, there's an argument that some people make that says, well, actually... Bitcoin mining is going to accelerate the adoption of renewable energy uh, because it's going to pull the cost curve down and it's going to solve some of these storage and distribution problems. Basically, Bitcoin is going to act as, as kind of a backup generator for the grid or kind of like a reverse battery for the grid. You know, not everybody buys that argument, right? You can say, on the other hand, that, for example, okay, uh, here's, here's a coal plant in upstate New York that was just brought back online and you know converted to natural gas, but still a fossil fuel. 
for the sole purpose of Bitcoin mining, right? So there's an example of uh, Bitcoin incentivizing the use of fossil fuels, or indeed we might say subsidizing the use of fossil fuels as opposed to uh, subsidizing renewable energy. So, you know, all to say, I think it's an interesting, complicated debate. I think uh, the, the surface level uh, facts that, that folks bandy about are, are a little disingenuous a lot of the time. Um, but, but at the end of the day, you know, this is, this is a conversation worth having. So I, I just want to kind of put the numbers in perspective a little bit. Absolutely. Um, and I wonder if you could talk to us about some of the ways that you sort of come up with story ideas um, as an environmental data journalist. Are there any go-to sources to get story ideas or does it it just sort of come from a, a news angle. Mm. Well, you know, the story's all around us, right? Cli climate change uh, is here, <laughs> if you didn't notice. And, and so I, I think for me, it's, it's often a matter of trying to get a sense of what's going to make that reality a little more tangible to folks. Um, I, I, I think one of the problems is that we've tended to try to cover climate change like the news in, in terms of, you know, the effectiveness of climate journalism. Um, you know, climate change is, is, is kind of different from the news. Uh, we, we break heat records and rain records all the time, and, and maybe that's newsworthy. But there's, there's a bigger, broader narrative here, right? And, and that narrative is systemic and structural in nature. And that narrative is, is, is further complicated by the fact that climate change doesn't care about borders and, and it's cross-generational and it moves, you know, pretty slowly at times, but then it's also quite unpredictable and then it'll move very quickly. It, it doesn't follow these narrative arcs that we're used to. It's, it's, it's a hard story to tell. So, so no, I, I tend not to think about story gathering and, and, and narrative with respect to climate change in terms of news. Uh, I, I tend to think about it in terms of, of broader narrative arcs well, these broader narrative arcs are a little difficult to wrap our heads around sometimes. And, and so in practice, what does that mean? You know, I, I think like it doesn't look too different from the, the classic forms of investigative journalism, right? Where do, where do our stories come from at, at Grist in, in terms of our investigative and data reporting? You know, these are like FOIA requests that we get back a couple months later after submitting them, you know, or these are tips we get from sources we've cultivated. Um, I, I, I think while you perhaps cannot force something like climate change um, into the into the round hole, right? You know, the square peg of climate change and the round hole of of breaking news every day per se. You know, you perhaps can kind of bend it into the mold of in investigative journalism and these longer, deeper dives. Uh, and, and in that vein, I, you know, there are just a lot of stories to tell. Um, I think one of the great things about climate data and, and environmental justice data is, is that these data sets are, are plentiful, right? And, and often open. A lot, there's a lot of data out there. And that's not always true in, in journalism. It's certainly not always true in, in, in public policy. And, and yet we, we have this vast wealth of data related to climate and energy and the environment. And, and so, you know, the job of the data journalist is to ensure that 
these data sets are, are human and felt and, and emotionally resonant. And, and so, uh, you know, in, in practice, what does that mean? Again, I think it's the, it's the classic toolbox of investigative journalism. And then it's also being willing and, and ready to get your hands a little dirty, right? Uh, sometimes I'll, I'll just pick up a data set and, and play with it for a little while and, and see, uh, you know, this, this is kind of data pre-reporting, see what's there. Um, I, I think, you know, there's, there's something to be said for the, the advent of readily available drag and drop visualization suites makes it a lot easier to conduct exploratory analysis with large data sets. And so I, I count myself lucky as somebody who's <laughs> alive in 2021 working as a data journalist, it, it's, it's, it's pretty darn easy to pick up a data set and start to ask a couple of correlative questions, right? Ask a couple questions about the relationship between this variable and this variable or this other variable and uh, this distribution. And, and, and upon doing so, you begin to, I think, formalize a set of questions that you might want to ask and answer over the course of an investigation. Uh, and, and ultimately, in, in the case of data journalism, those questions are empirically testable. You know, they have yes or no answers, perhaps, uh, but the stories are best, I think, when the, the answers are interesting, regardless of what they are, right? You can write a good headline regardless uh, if the answer is yes or no. Mm. Definitely. And I wonder if you could just elaborate a bit about your coding skills. I mean, obviously, you have a lot of skills in this area, given your background and your master's degree. But um, yeah, tell us what what those are. And, you know, are you more of an R Python person or what, what other, you know, programming skills do you use? Right. You know, computational neuroscience is pretty much all MATLAB. And I, I don't use any MATLAB these days, but it was kind of the entree to programming. Um, I'd say I spend about a third of my day in R any given day. Um, I use R for most of my scripting and, 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 you know, most of my static plotting. Um, I use Python for web scraping and I, I use it occasionally for, you know, building an app, for example. So I'm getting like really fancy. Then there's room for some D3. I mean, none of these words are surprising to anybody listening to, to this podcast. <laughs> um, that, that, that's kind of the, you know, the three musketeers of data journalism are Python and D3. Um, the, the, the fun stuff on the side, uh, we, we, we at Grist um, run on WordPress and there's not great D3 and WordPress integration. So we use this other JavaScript library called AM charts, which uh, I've, I've become a recent fan of. It, it makes responsive, interactive design pretty darn easy. Uh, and so that's a, that's a fun one. Um, and then, you know, for, for bigger builds, um, I've been doing a lot of green sock lately for animation uh, and, you know, kind of scrolly telling. Uh, and then there's this great library from uh, the folks at the at the pudding called Scroll Llama um, that that also makes uh, scrolly telling, as it were, an infinitely easier uh, than it used to be. So th those are those are kind of the big ones. You know, geographic analysis. I'm in QGIS, finishing figures. I'm in Illustrator. 
Uh, and then most of my exploratory work is in Tableau. I'm act, I'm like a big <laughs> Tableau fan and, and will stand on a mountain uh, for them and, and, and scream, scream the, the, the product's utility from the bottom of my heart. I, I think, um, there's, there's a lot to be said for this type of drag and drop exploratory visualization. And I think when I'm starting a project, often what I do is throw a data set in Tableau, get a sense of what's going on, maybe mock a couple figures and then move to R and, and kind of finish the proper analysis. Uh, and, you know, and then production work is in, again, maybe D3 or Illustrator. Yeah. It seems more and more data journalists are kind of specializing in a specific beat like immigration or like environmental reporting. You know, what is your one piece advice for them if they're going into into particularly climate justice reporting and, and they're they want to focus on the data? Well, I think you've said it. I think climate reporting is climate justice reporting. I, I, I mentioned that I, I tend to see the role of the climate journalist as pulling these big data sets down from the realm of the abstract and the realm of the future into the realm of the present and, and that of the human. And what does that mean? It, it means telling stories about people, right? Climate change isn't made real unless we understand its effects on, 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 on real people, right? Our, our neighbors and other parts, us. And, and so I think my advice for folks who are looking at the climate crisis and you may be seeing record wildfire seasons and record hurricane seasons and temperature spikes and extreme weather left and right and pretty darn hopeless, as it were, reports coming out of the IPCC. And they have this impulse to work on climate change. They wanna take their data journalism skills and apply them to the climate crisis. And my advice would be to, to not forget wherever it is you're coming from, right? If, if, if you come from a traditional journalism background, what you're, what you're probably used to doing is writing about people. And, and you ought to be doing the same thing when you're writing about the climate crisis. I think, um, I think there's this tendency to imagine data journalism as a kind of island that somehow sits off the coast of, of journalism writ large. It's this like special thing that the programmers do. And then you end up with these nice, like immersive visual features. And, and that's all well and good. I mean, it, I think confuses data journal, journalism with visual journalism, but that's another story. But, but I think the, the core problem there is that it, it, it fails to acknowledge the fact that the core tools of data journalism, and maybe we can call those data science, machine learning, and data visualization, I don't know, maybe UX design, those core tools are just, they're additional complements to the traditional investigative reporting toolkit, right? You, you should still be doing archival research. You should still be filing public records requests. And, and, and most importantly, you should still be talking to people. And, and so I think my, my, my main advice for folks moving into environmental journalism, and there are a lot of folks moving into environmental journalism these days. I, I don't know if you've like picked up a newspaper, but all of a sudden every newspaper like has a climate section, which is awesome. Two thumbs up, sign me up. But there's a, there's a lot of noise out there now. And, and I think breaking through that noise and telling 
what I argue is the correct story implies that you're talking to people and you're thinking about the manners in which these data sets are acting on real communities. The climate crisis is a story of environmental injustice and climate injustice. And if you are missing those angles, you are either missing the lead completely or you are burying it so far as to not be found. Brilliant. That's that's some very useful advice there. Um, <laughs> and I love the analogy about data journalism being on that island and, you know, something magical happens and then it appears. Um, (laughs) And and you did say, don't forget where you came from. I wonder for you, with your computational neuroscience background, you're still working in that field technically, right? Or is that kind of something you've put on the back burner for now? It's it's very much on the back burner. Uh, I I do still have a a couple um, fingers in the pot of homelessness and housing policy analysis, which is the the field I was in kind of immediately prior to to coming back to environmental journalism. But I I think for better or for worse, my computational neuroscience days are more or less firmly behind me. I don't know what my former thesis advisor would say to that, but. (laughs) Okay. Well, brilliant. Um, Thank you so much, uh, Clayton Aldern, for coming on Conversations with Data. Yeah, thanks so much, Tara. Like like I said, I'm I'm a I'm a darn big fan. So it has been a a total dream. (laughs) Well, take care, Clayton. Likewise. Thanks so much. A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. Want to hear more interesting discussions on data journalism? You can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. You can also get the podcast straight to your inbox by subscribing to our newsletter at datajournalism.com slash subscribe. I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.